evening, I'd like to continue to explore the theme I began with the other evening on personal mythology and awakening. I spoke a little bit about the mixture of longing and fear that is evoked in us by the possibility of awakening. The mixture of anxiety and yearning that we sometimes encounter within ourselves when we are faced with the possibility of understanding emptiness and understanding freedom. Clearly there is part of ourselves that intuitively reaches for greatness of heart, for freedom of being. There's a part of us too that feels content to accept a certain amount of limitation within our lives and may question the price that we have to pay for freedom. In all of our exploration of the Dharma, it seems very clear that the dissolution, the ending of separation, is also the dissolution and the ending of a separate self. And it is this ending, or this dissolution, that raises so much within ourselves the voices of defensiveness and fear. I think for many people there is a real fear of being no one, of being invisible, that might happen to us if we were to let go of our story. I think this dilemma about letting go of our story may be particularly acute for us as Westerners, raised in a culture which so much emphasizes psychological and emotional wholeness, at times which emphasizes so much being someone in our world. It is such a radical leap of consciousness to imagine that there is freedom in being no one. I think too, for many of us, an essential part of our own awakening in our lives, an essential part of actually feeling that we live an authentic and a genuine life, has really come to our capacity to reclaim our own story, our own life, and our own journey. I think for many people, they discover through pain, and through the experience of struggle and conflict, the extent to which it is possible for us to live somebody else's story and travel somebody else's journey in our lives. We have, almost from the moment of our birth, thrust upon us the expectations and the models and the images and the demands of so many different people and so many different authorities in our lives. And so many of these expectations and models which are thrust upon us really do play a very significant role in the ways in which we construct our own personal story that we come to believe in. 
through the variety of authorities and influences in our lives, we learn many things about what is good and bad, about what is acceptable and unacceptable. To our own fears and insecurities, to our own yearning for acceptance and approval and love, we absorb on a very cellular level the expectations and models of images and demands of others. It seems that the way to be loved, the way to be accepted, the way to be approved of is really to be who someone else wishes us to be. In striving and struggling to meet and achieve the expectations of others or the expectations that we have absorbed, we have many times found ourselves in our lives driven by the twin forces of reward and punishment of success and failure. We find ourselves many times reaching for goals or dreams or aspirations or turning away from other choices. Based choices and decisions based often upon what we fear the rewards or the penalties will be. There are times in our lives in traveling many of the paths that we follow that we believe that we are pursuing even our own personal goals and ambitions and aspirations, sometimes not questioning what is actually driving us. Some, some months ago, I, had, uh, I, I was intended to go to a meeting with a, a woman I'd never met before. It was a luncheon meeting. And, and we met in this place, and I could only ever describe this woman, you know, if I was to describe her appearance, I would say, you know, she was certainly very willowy and slim and slender. She was, you know, kind of classic. And we sat down for lunch, and I kind of pulled out my bag with my sort of, you know, rather hefty sandwich and cookies and drink, and she pulled out these crackers. And she sat there and she looked at my sandwich and she said, I wish I could eat your sandwich. But I can't. I absolutely can't. You can't imagine what would happen if I ate your sandwich. Our ways of assessing and measuring and judging ourselves we actually believe to be accurate. There is no way that a judgment would concern us on any level whatsoever, unless we believed it to be true. Otherwise, it would not simply, it would simply not concern us. We have learned a lot about standards of acceptability, about our bodies, about our personalities, about our minds, about what saintliness looks like. We have also, I think, discovered in our lives the penalties we pay for living somebody else's story and traveling somebody else's path. We discover the penalties we pay through the ever-present presence and tension of the judge, which is repetitively telling us we are not good enough that we are simply not good enough, not acceptable enough. 
I think we have learned in our lives the lessons of frustration, the lessons of self-negation that are so intrinsic to a life which is dedicated to gaining approval and affirmation. And I think, too, for many of us, we may have explored that most significant landscape of pain and struggle that is born from being exiled from what is true, authentic, and genuine within our own being. As a result of many of these lessons in our lives, I also fear many of us come to a place in ourselves where we really resolve to no longer be a prisoner of someone else's expectations or needs or the desires of some authority outside of ourselves. I think through pain and struggle we can come to a place in our lives where we resolve to no longer endlessly attempt to become who someone else wants us to be. Where we resolve to no longer attempt to achieve models of perfection and acceptability. Now these resolves and the understanding that brings about these resolves are actually a very genuine and a very essential aspect of awakening to come to a place where we actually feel we are walking our own path, being guided by our own wisdom. But it is also true that these are hard lessons to learn, to learn how to trust ourselves, to learn how to accept and embrace all aspects of our being with openness and with compassion, it's one of the most difficult lessons we are asked to learn in our lives. And yet in coming here, in actually being able to come to a retreat, we are, we are embodying so much of the wisdom and so much of the learning that has come to us in our lives. In our willingness to be alone, our willingness to listen inwardly, we are embodying the lessons of great courage, great wisdom that tells us of the need to set aside the multitude of voices in our lives that are endlessly instructing us to become something other. In having the patience and the trust to be still, we are embodying the lesson of no longer being willing to be governed and directed by judgments and assumptions which speak to us about imperfection or not being good enough. We are embodying the understanding that so many of our own judgments are simply replaying endlessly the judgments of the past, the judgments of so many other voices in our lives. In having the trust to question, to look anew at ourselves. We are willing to really ask what voice we are listening to. I think for many people it takes years of struggle and pain, years of doubt and fear to come to a point where they feel they are living their own life, have the capacity to heal themselves, where they are following their own choices and intuitions and living a life of authenticity. I think in the light of so much of the struggle and the effort that we have had to make in order to come to this place in our lives, 
It is easy to understand the ambivalence, the reluctance, and at times the, the kind of implacable resistance that arises when we are greeted with the invitation to let go of our story, to let go of our sense of self. It may seem that we have spent so much time learning how to be someone, learning how to be here in this body, in this mind, in this personality, learning how to embody confidence and trust in ourselves, our relationships, and our lives, that to live, you know, to be invited to live in a spirit of emptiness, to be invited to live in a spirit of being no one, can sound like just another prescription for invisibility. In the talk this evening, I would like to look at our personal mythology, the power that our stories have, the wisdom that our stories can offer us, and the limitations that our stories can impose, and even the limitations that a good story can impose. And I, you know, there are people here who have good stories, you know. There are people here, actually, you know, who had really happy childhoods, you know, who weren't punished, who weren't rejected, who weren't negated, you know, they had a pretty happy life, and they have a pretty good story. I mean, not everyone comes to meditation because they are in the midst of, you know, great tragedies and suffering. And yet, even a good story can create, perhaps, many limitations. Now, we all have a story. We have a story about ourselves. We have a story about our world. And we have a story about our lives. Our personal story is revealed to us in the kind of thoughts that we think, the kind of mind we experience. Our story is revealed to us in the kind of feelings that move us the opinions and the judgments that we hold to be true. Our story is revealed to us through the paths that we find ourselves avoiding and the pursuits that we find ourselves following. Our story is found through the things that we aspire to, that we hold to be worthy, and the other things, qualities or choices that we reject or deny. Our story is made visible to us, to us through the fears that we experience, the defensiveness, the descriptions that we hold about ourselves. Our stories, one story can look very different from another story. There is no one who has exactly the same story as you. Now our, our stories, all of our stories, no matter how different they are from each other, all of our stories have a beginning. Now we experience our stories in two different ways. Sometimes we experience our story in a way that is changing incredibly quickly, even on a moment-to-moment -moment level. Sometimes we see the way in which our story changes according to whatever feeling or thought or memory or image happens to be dominant in the moment. Which is why, you know, in a single day you can see yourself moving from being, 
you know, a grand shining star of meditation, you know, to, you know, feeling miserable, you know, to feeling so loving and compassionate towards everybody, to the next moment feeling so uptight and negative. You know, you can see these stories about yourself changing throughout the day. You know, sometimes you can experience yourself in a single day in a hundred different ways. So we have this story that is changing on a moment-to-moment level, sometimes according to what we are identifying with. But there's another level of story which we carry with us, which has a kind of ancient history. And that story is more like a Gothic novel. You know, it's a story that's huge. It, it goes way back, you know, to our first memories, to our first experiences. And it can read sort of like a Victorian novel, you know, it has endless, endless interwoven plots and yet these, these kind of themes that carry through it. Now sometimes that more essential story we carry about ourselves, it's almost impossible to trace its beginnings. And I think it's very important to understand the way in which it is not possible to trace the beginnings of our story. Because our essential story, the story that we believe to be true about ourselves, is actually undeniably linked and interwoven in so many ways with the stories of other people. You can see in the, in the a mother who, who rejects or condemns or criticizes her daughter for being weak or inadequate may very well be passing on the story that she herself has inherited from her mother and her mother before her. We can see the way in which a parent may, may push a child to strive and succeed and to be perfect may very well simply be passing on a story that has been passed down through many, many generations. When we see the way it is possible to, to hold a hatred, to hold a prejudice, to hold a judgment, how many of them are, are our own? And how many of these hatreds or judgments or prejudices are simply passed down from generation to generation? Children learn about hatred. Children learn about condemnation. We learn about uh, worthiness and unworthiness to absorbing the stories of others. Our stories are equally formed to our own life experience, our own experiences of rejection or fear, our stories of abuse or explo- exploitation, our moments and experiences of happiness, of elation and excitement, they all form themes and chapters in us and contribute towards creating our own stories. Our moments of intimacy and love and acceptance equally play a part in creating our own personal story and mythology. It is important to understand the ways in which our stories, it, where the way it is so difficult to trace the beginnings of our stories because it allows us to let go of so much blame. You know, so often we look around us 
at the world and we blame, you know, we say someone is an abuser, someone is a victim, someone is violent, you know, someone is filled with hatred. Where can we, is it possible for us to place blame? No one is born into a particular identity. Our identities, our stories are interwoven with the identities and the stories of so many others. Our past and the past of others binds together to shape our present. To our experiences, to the stories that we inherit and absorb, there is born our sense of who we believe ourselves to be in this moment. Now our belief in who we are in this moment, our sense of who we are, shapes our experience of life. Our sense of who we are shapes and flavors our experience of the world. Our sense of who we are that we find within our descriptions and our judgments and our conclusions, that identity shapes our understanding of what is possible for us and what is not possible for us. And this identity, this story, is somewhat unique. We have a feeling of a separate self, or sometimes we are possessed by the notion of a separate self. And in this sense of separate, a separate self, all things and all people in the world are separate from us. It is what we call our individuality. It is what makes us unique, even when that uniqueness is not something we choose. Through living our story, our story becomes more real and more solid. Through living our story in the present, then our story also shapes our future. I would like to use a particular analogy to describe this. If you could imagine a group of people, and that, you know, a relatively large group of people, gathering together, sharing a common purpose to climb a mountain. Now, they've heard, all this group of people have heard, that the view from the top of this mountain is absolutely wondrous. So they all get together and meet together at the bottom of the mountain with the intention to climb the mountain. So one person in that group of people, you know, takes one look at the mountain and says, no way, and goes home. Another person comes charging out of the bushes, barefoot, wild-eyed, and goes charging up the mountain without any thought of uh, the best way to approach it, the most skillful way. They're just impulsively charging for the top. Another person steps out of the crowd carrying this incredibly heavy suitcase. You know, they've got emergency food rations and a parachute, you know, and the latest weather reports and first aid, you know, and a sleeping bag and a hot water bottle. They have everything that they might need in case they encounter any dangers climbing the mountain. Another person may look at the mountain and say, well, you know, there's got to be a shortcut. You know, I wonder if there's somewhere to hire a helicopter or a horse. There's got to be an easier way to get up this mountain. 
Another person will start out climbing the mountain with good intentions and they'll get around the first corner and see a bench and say, oh, that's good enough. It's pretty nice here, you know, I'll just sit down and rest for a while. And they can be so much enjoying the view that they totally forget about getting up to the top of the mountain. Another person, you know, might be getting started with the intention to climb the mountain, but they're so sure they're never going to make it, but they don't want to lose faith. You know, they don't want anybody else to know of this doubt. So, you know, they get around the corner and they, they stumble over a pebble. Oh, no, I've twisted my ankle. I have to go down and try it another day. There are all these different ways for this group of people to approach this one climb up the mountain. Each of these people is actually living their story. Each of these people, through their approach to climbing this mountain, is making visible in their approach their belief in who they are and in being directed by, and in living their story in the present, they are reinforcing the story of the past. The story of the past is made more solid in the present through the living of it. The striver is made more solid, the victim is made more solid, the negotiator assumes more solidity, the master is made more real and solid, through living in the present, the stories of the past. Through that approach, our stories continue to shape our present and our future. You can extend that analogy of the mountain, of course, to the way that we approach so many things in our life, even to the way we do a retreat. In what ways may we be living the stories of the past? Our stories live on when they are not questioned. In many ways, when we look at how we would do a retreat, we see the way our approach to a retreat actually tells us the story of our lives. The great gift, of course, is that in being able to see and in being able to question, we can question the reality of our stories. We can question the reality of the sense of self and identity. And we can question, ask ourselves, where freedom actually lies. Now sometimes we have the thoughts that say, well, in our approach to the mountain, we are actually expressing the wisdom that we have learnt from the past, the wisdom that we have learnt through our stories. We may say to ourselves, well, before, you know, I, I, I tried to climb the mountain and I fell over and got hurt, and so this time I really need that suitcase with all the emergency rations. We may say, well, before I, 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 I took too many risks, now I need to be more careful. We may say to ourselves, well, before I was too cautious and I took no risks, therefore it's right for me to charge up the mountain without regard for looking where I'm going. We might say to ourselves, in my life I've been driven too much by ambitiousness and by striving, and it's good for me to find the first bench to sit down on. Now, it is possible, it is possible that this is true, that through our approach to the mountain, through our approach to our lives, 
through our approach to a retreat, we are expressing what we have learned from the past. It is helpful. It is helpful that we do learn from the past. It is helpful that we do learn from our stories in the past. And that the learning that we have gained and derived from past experience leads us to live with greater skillfulness and balance and wisdom in the present. But it is also important for us to question the possibility that as long as the past and the stories from the past are our reference point for the present, then we are not free in the present. That we are bound to the past even when our present lives are a re reaction to the past. And we see this on retreats too. You know, sometimes people come on retreats and maybe in their past they've had a lot of issues with authorities, you know? They've decided, you know, they're no longer obedient to authorities. You know, so they read the schedule and they see the schedule and they say, oh no, somebody's telling me what to do. You know, I'm going to show that I'm not obedient to authorities, afraid of authorities. So when they say sit, I'm going to walk. When they say walk, I'm going to sit. And, you know, you can feel temporarily very free. Except, of course, the present is a total reaction to the past. And so it is still bound to the past. One person may sit and they sit with pain. And they may say, oh, well, in the past, every other retreat I've done, I've always succumbed to pain and squirmed and wriggled. This time, I'm not going to. This time, I'm going to master my pain. So they sit there and they're like a mountain all the time, gritting their teeth and sweat pouring down their face. And they think, well, look, I'm not bound to the past. I'm not succumbing to my pain. But of course they're still bound. Still bound in reaction. Still bound in reaction to the past. There is no freedom. It is important that we all learn the lessons from the past, from fear, from pain, from struggle, from sorrow. The lessons we need to learn are the lessons that show us how in this moment in our lives, how to live with dignity, with wisdom and compassion. The, wisdom, the lessons we need to learn from the past are the lessons that show us really what contributes to sorrow and to suffering and what contributes to freedom and peace and happiness. These are lessons we need to learn again and again in our lives so that we are no longer willing to consent to the furthering of any more conflict or any more division. Our stories teach us what causes pain and what ends pain. Our stories teach us then the path to live with greater wisdom and with dignity. We learn these lessons from the past. And we learn these lessons from our stories so that we are free to move on in our lives. So that we are free to let go of the past. So that we are free to draw upon something else other than the past as a means of shaping our present. So that we are free to draw upon openness and confidence and wisdom as our foundation for the present, rather than our memories of pain and pleasure. I would like to read you something from 
the Buddha. A person walking along a high road sees a great river, its near bank dangerous and frightening, its far bank safe. They collect sticks and leaves and branches and make a raft and paddle across the river and reach the other shore. Now, the, now suppose that after they reach the other shore, they take the raft and put it on their head and walk with it on their head wherever they go. Would they be using the raft in an appropriate way? No. A reasonable person will realize that the raft has been very useful to them in crossing the river and arriving safely on the other shore. But that once they have arrived, it is proper to leave the raft behind and walk on without it. This is using the raft appropriately. In the same way, all truths should be used to cross over. They should not be held on to once you have arrived. You should let go of even the most profound insight or the most wholesome teaching, all the more so unwholesome teaching. To be free in our lives, to be free in ourselves in a very profound way, we need to be willing to let go of our stories as references, as guiding lights for the present, to open to new ways of being that are filled with vitality and questioning and exploration. When we look at our past and look at our stories, when we look at the pains and the fears and the sorrows and the joys that form so many of the themes and the chapters in our stories, often we are looking back upon the events in our lives. And our lives are shaped, our stories are shaped in very dramatic ways by the events in our lives, the experiences we have had that have scarred us, wounded us, or that have enlivened us. In many ways, our story is more profoundly shaped by events of pain than by events of joy. In many ways, our sense of self and our sense of identity is more profoundly shaped by events of pain. We may have encountered moments of rejection, of disillusionment. We may have had experiences of terror, of rejection, of failure, of loss. And part of our healing and part of our awakening is opening to the truth of the events in our lives. Opening to the truth of the events of our lives is a way of letting go of guilt, a way of letting go of blame. What is most important for us to see is that very profound understanding that the truth of the events in our lives cannot in any way describe the truth of who we are. No matter how many rejections we encounter in our lives, no matter how many moments of failure, of disconnection, no matter how many sorrows we may have endured, there is no truth to the description that we are a victim, 
that we are unworthy, that we are inadequate, that we are imperfect. When we marry the truth of the events in our lives to our sense of who we are, we create a personal mythology. We say, I am. We have a conclusion which endlessly replays the past and the present in different forms. There is a great wisdom in seeing the ways in which we can be imprisoned by our own descriptions and our own conclusions. There's a story I came across that I would like to read to you. In Ireland in the 1960s, a young nun was sent as a temporary worker to another convent and stepped into a world she had not known existed. Her job was to supervise the women working in the convent laundry, a gloomy and claustrophobic room. The women wore old clothes. Mostly they were quiet and passive, apart from one or two who hadn't been there long and were rebellious. A number of them were single mothers whose children had been taken from them. The convent graveyard held the bodies of 183 women. Some were unmarried mothers rejected by their families. Others were destitute and homeless because of mental illness. Many of the women she supervised stayed in the convent until they died. The most extraordinary aspect of it is that they were told they were not allowed to leave. They were locked in at night. Legally, they could have walked out of the gate any time they wanted, but very few did. For many, there was no place to go. They lived and died in a virtual prison. Until the 1960s, thousands of Irish women were condemned to a life of servitude and confinement with the knowledge, coercion, and approval of family, church, and state. Places were created to remove from society unmanageable women. Not only were they never told they could leave, but the regimes emphasized their sin and guilt and disbarred them from ever speaking about themselves. They were called the laundry girls, seen but never spoken about. The nuns who cared for them were equally imprisoned by their own beliefs that led them to collude in the theft of the freedom and dignity of thousands of women. And the most extraordinary thing in this story is the understanding, is the statement, that they could walk out any time they wished. Perhaps this is what this path and this journey offers to us, the opportunity for us to see for ourselves. But also, our prisons can be very real. We can believe we need to stay in them. We can even believe that we deserve to stay in these prisons of self, of identity, prisons, of believing in imperfection, of believing in a lack of freedom. And yet we are the only ones who, are, who have always held and do hold the key to open the doors to these prisons. In not seeking for identity or belief or conclusion anywhere in any moment, we dissolve and open many of the doors of our prisons. We question these realities. We question our assumptions. We question the truth of anything that is conditioned, that arises and passes. It's a great teacher 
and said, Enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon doesn't get wet, the water isn't broken. Although it's light and it is broad and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in one dewdrop on the grass. Enlightenment doesn't destroy the person just as the moon doesn't break the water. The person doesn't hinder enlightenment just as a dewdrop doesn't hinder the moon in the sky. The depth of the dewdrop is the height of the moon. The time of the reflection, long or short, proves the vastness of the dewdrop and the vastness of the moon in the sky. For us in this path, to not mistake any appearance to be the truth, to not accept any description to be the truth, is to open to the possibility of a greater truth emerging, a deeper understanding. And just as it takes only a tiny dewdrop to reflect the moon, it is important for us to abandon any notion that we must be perfect to be free, that we must work everything out in order to be free, that we must become someone other in order to be free. It only takes a tiny dewdrop to reflect the whole of the moon. In this practice, in our experience here, it only takes a moment of really a real spaciousness of the true devoted spaciousness of awareness to reflect, to see the vastness of our own being. May all beings be present in this moment. May all beings live with openness of heart. May all beings Rest in awareness. If we can have just two minutes, kind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.